This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Class really matters. And, and, you know, people on the right and the left, we can have that conversation about how much it should matter, but it matters. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's incredible panel, returning to the Roundup, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. The one and only Mike Madrid. Mike, thanks for joining today. Good to see you. Good morning. Thanks for having me today. And making his Roundup debut returning to politicology is Tom Nichols. Tom is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's an expert on Russia and international security issues. He spent 25 years teaching national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College, as well as at Dartmouth, Georgetown, and Harvard, where he was also a fellow at the Kennedy School. He's authored numerous books, including one we've discussed at length here on Politicology called Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. And perhaps one of his most recent credits goes to Succession. Tom, welcome back. You want to tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, apparently Succession uh, was looking to cast a middle-aged uh, white male curmudgeon uh, <laughs> as a pundit. And, uh, and um, you know, you you found the right guy, right? And said, Hey, I know a guy in middle-aged curmudgeonly, uh, you know, right winger. Here you go. And, uh, it was really <laughs> fascinating. It was, I wrote, actually wrote about it, um, for the Atlantic because even though I had, you know, I had a named character and pages of script and all that, like most things that you just kind of saw me as people walked by TVs, um, but I, I learned, I actually, the most time I spent with anybody was with uh, Zach Robidos, who plays Mark Ravenhead. Um, we were all at a table together and Zach, is, uh, just for the record, he is not like Mark Ravenhead. He's a great guy. Uh, but I learned a lot about just how TV gets made. And I got to be right there on the set. I watched, you know, Matthew McFadden and, and um, uh, Nicholas Braun and, you know, do their sim. And it was just, it was just this incredible, you know, kind of how the sausage gets made. Um, experience, but it was also amazing how easily, um, you know, sitting here with talking heads, right. And pundits, um, it's amazing how easily, you know, when the director said, okay, guys, just riff on like, you know, how they're stealing the election and we could all, <laughs> it was so easy to do because it's such a facile form of commentary yeah. to do the kind of right-wing conspiracy theory stuff that all of us were like, oh yeah, right. Of course, you know, um, and, and we could just spool it right off, which, which I think was kind of a cautionary note about what you're seeing on television sometimes, Thank but it you. was, it was really a great experience. I'm so, I'm so glad that all worked out. Uh, and I think it's uh, season four, episode eight. Is that right? They can catch you. Uh, right. America decides America the decides. Um, big yeah. election one. And, yeah. um, there are, there are some, my, my best moments are when Khan is staring at me on a television <laughs> and when, uh, Shiv 
and um, Roe are having a fight in the control room and they've got big splotches of my face behind them talking about Maricopa County's vote. Um, that was my... That was my one. I, by the way, I don't. Uh, my my appearance was so limited that I don't yet have a Screen Actors Guild card. But I'm hoping to. Um, <laughs> I'm going to weasel my way onto like the new Star Trek or something. Now that I've got a IMDb credit, so um, it would be cool. It, it's funny. I, I checked out your IMDb page just to see if it was up there. And there's all these, you know, hits on Morning Joe and all the news shows. And then it's like actor succession. Oh, there it is. <laughs> I saved, my wife thought it was so cool. I showed her this um, pay stub that I got that said, you know, role, it's an actor. And I said, that's it. That goes, that's, we're saying, that's a keepsake. Gotta frame that that we hand that one down uh, t- t- to the family. <laughs> it's like, they're acting. Um, so, you know, if anybody says, oh yeah, like you ever got paid as an actor? Well, in fact I did. Um, (laughs) so, and it was, it was fun. I mean, it was just, and I, I actually made some friends, um, you know, got to know, because as you know, they bring in real journos and, you know, pundits. So I got to hang with, with some great guys, Danny Savalos and Dave Curley and, um, uh, Dave Briggs. And, you know, we just, we had a grand old time and also the food was good. Terrific. At, oh, that's uh, at the canteen. So, yeah. some, I, so I ate well on top of everything else. So. Amazing. So glad. So glad that worked out. Okay, guys. Uh, up first this week, we're going to discuss the Supreme Court ruling overturning affirmative action. Then we're going to look at the short-lived rebellion in Russia, what the potential consequences of that might be, uh, and the invasion of Ukraine. Then we'll discuss Tom's piece calling for renewal of real patriotism. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss a federal court ruling restricting the Biden administration's communications with social media platforms. To get ad-free access to the show, plus lots more special episodes on a private podcast feed, head on over to politicology.com slash plus or click the link at the top of today's show notes. We'll dig in right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, so last Thursday the Supreme Court ruled that colleges can no longer consider race in their admissions decisions in a checkbox sort of way. I want to be clear about that because there's been a lot of hyperbole on social media um, from all corners about the admissions process no longer being able to consider race at all, which is actually false. In two cases, six justices voted to invalidate the admissions programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson recused herself in the Harvard case, so that was 6-2. The other case was 6-3. In his opinion for the majority, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote, quote, Many universities have for too long concluded wrongly that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. Our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. Roberts also pointed out that in the court's 2003 decision reaffirming the constitutionality of affirmative action, Sandra Day O'Connor wrote that the court expected that the use of racial preferences would no longer be necessary to create a diverse student body in 25 years. And in her dissent, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson wrote, quote, 
With Let Them Eat Cake obliviousness today, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. But deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. Now, before the ruling, nine states, including California, Oklahoma, Michigan, Texas, Florida, and New Hampshire, had already banned race-conscious admissions, mainly as a result of voter initiatives. California was able to increase the raw numbers of minority groups at schools like UCLA, but the overall enrollment in the UC system lags behind the demographics across the state. More than half of high school seniors in California are Latino, compared to about 35% of freshmen in the UC system, for example. So I want to pause there uh, before we move on into this topic and and get your initial reactions to this ruling. Uh, Tom, do you want to lead off? For me, it's a complicated thing because I grew up in a working class. I was part of the white Northeastern ethnic working class. So when I, um, you know, applied to college in the 70s, um, affirmative action was for us, a, a, you know, I, I, with my parents and I were part of that broad movement of people who thought uh, that it was just a bad idea. And that's because we, because of course it didn't advantage us. It didn't help, you know, a, a working class kid. Um, and so, you know, there was always this kind of, the, the phrase itself was kind of a dirty word. Um, but of course, as time goes on, um, colleges and universities become more creative and you kind of, I spent 35 years teaching and, uh, teaching undergraduates as well. And you, you come to realize that you have to have some kind of mechanism to create diversity. You don't want classes full of, you know, um, valedictorians from, um, New York and Los Angeles. Um, I, I, there's an ironic note here, by the way, I, I went to summer school as a teenager at Harvard and I arrived like literally just days before Baki was decided. So I was like there and, you know, kind of watched Harvard run around in circles. I was 17. I had no idea what was going on. Um, but with all of that, with all of that kind of baggage, um, I, I, I think there was just no way that the court was going to reach. And we're all very allergic to decisions from this court for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, because of Thomas and Alito and because of um, Mitch McConnell's chicanery and, and a lot of other, you know, people are just ready to kind of pounce and freak out at decisions from this court. But I, I, watching this over this case develop over the years, I kind of found it hard to find, to, to think that the Supreme Court was going to reach any other decision besides striking down more of affirmative action, more not because I, Ron, I think you're absolutely right. It doesn't end it. Um, it, it just really severely curtails it. But it also, as you point out, leaves a hole that you can drive a truck through. Colleges, I, I, I mean, I really think colleges are just going to do what they did after 78. They're going to be more creative um, and, and simply, you know, start including things in essays and other flags. Um, I, my, at the Atlantic, I know there have been pieces over the years that I think probably should get another look as well, that maybe there will be some greater sensitivity. And this long meandering story comes all the way back to when I was a working class kid in the 70s, some sensitivity to class-based affirmative action. Because I think one thing that's been happening is, the you know, you're still getting a lot of kids who are getting into schools, who are getting a leg up, who already had a leg up relatively speaking, regardless of race, because of class. Um, 
So I think it'll be interesting to see, does this this increase enrollments from poorer kids um, of any race? Um, You know, but but also I think it'll be interesting to see how the universities decide to uh, do this and with kind of less of a sledgehammer way. So all of that is a long way around of saying, I guess I just wasn't surprised by this outcome. You know, our George Conway had a great line. He said, um, you know, if the schools are wondering how this happened, they should look in the mirror because solutions they were choosing. And I, I it just felt inevitable to me. So yeah. One I have my fire about it, obviously. Yeah. Mike, one facet of this that I think has gotten lost in a lot of the news coverage, especially on social media, but news coverage I've seen, uh, is that essentially what had happened in the Harvard case specifically is that minority groups had been pitted against each other. And that actually, if you look at the admissions policies, Asian Americans were basically explicitly discriminated against in the policy. Um, And the way in which this allows, uh, this new precedent still allows for affirmative action is at an individual level when an admissions committee is evaluating individual students and whether or not their race has played a role in an element of their character or academic qualifications that that would add to the diversity of the student body, as opposed to a a blanket uh, judgment about a racial group. And um, and I want to read you this quote that uh, comes from a piece, um, a personal essay John McWhorter wrote in the New York Times a couple of days ago. John McWhorter is a um, is a black linguistics professor at Columbia University, and he was writing about his experience of race in academia. And he writes, there's a widespread cultural assumption in academia that black people are valuable as much, if not more, for our sheer presence as for the rigor of what we actually do. Thus, it is unnecessary to subject us to top-level standards. This leads to things happening too often that are never written as explicit directives, but are consonant with the general cultural agenda. People granted tenure with nothing approaching the publishing records of other candidates or celebrated more for their socio-political orientations than for their research. And then he concludes the essay, the decision to stop taking race into account in admissions, assuming it is accompanied by other efforts to assist the truly disadvantaged is, I believe, the right one to make. Uh, I lay all that at your feet, and I'd love to hear how you're thinking about this, because I know you have been a lot. Yeah, and look, I've got a lot of thoughts about it, and I think that I would agree kind of with most of what both the author there said, what Tom Nichols was just suggesting, and what what George Conway was saying, you know, on Twitter. I think that's, uh, not only do I think this decision was inevitable, I also think it was the right decision when it properly understood, and that is that race alone as a sole characteristic should not be the deciding factor on admissions, which is what was happening at Harvard and in North Carolina. And when that was happening, you were seeing discrimination specifically against uh, Asian undergraduates, uh, uh, application for the undergraduate program. That, that's not okay. You, you can't, at some point, you cannot get towards this more perfect union that we all talk about. Um, if, if, if that is the criteria. Now, now having said that, again, look, my own experience as an undergraduate at Georgetown, was I a beneficiary of affirmative action as a you know, young Hispanic male in the early 1990s? Pro- probably. I mean, I'll, you'll never know. That's always that burden that you carry there. I do know 
that I was the first Latino, first Mexican-American that probably 80% of my you know, white boarding school friends had ever met or seen at that time in American history. And, and they were getting as much out of it as I was getting. So the culture of academia and the academy has changed, and I think for the good, where our racial and, and ethnic lenses are providing a value add simply because they are that. And that, that's where I find Robert's you know, decision, his writings so, so lacking and so backwards that they don't recognize where America is at today. There, there is intrinsic value. We, we, the, the mythology of America always tells us, well, why can't you just be American? Why can't you just be like everybody else? Why do you have to have a hyphen? This is America. America is the, the one country you can come to and everybody can become American. Well, well that's just horseshit. It's always been horseshit. It works for you if you're white. That, that's, and that's what being American really means is come and be white. Black Americans have never had that holy American experience, nor have most Latinos. Now have you know, oh, there's a whole wide range of people who've never had that experience. Now, and so, so as we go through this demographic transformation in the country, we have to recognize that there are some legitimate systemic problems that the academy has had for a couple hundred years, but they, they, they've, they've got to be reconciled with maintaining the same standard for everybody. And, and this is part of that balancing. Act. I, I think this was, again, the right decision. I think that the actions by Harvard and North Carolina and, and other you know, institutions have been too narrowly focused. But I also believe, like in the California experience, that institutions of higher education will double down on their efforts to get to more diverse student bodies, not because it's politically correct, but because it's inherently valuable to educate a human being in today's modern era, in today's modern society. That's going to happen. It should happen. And I think it will happen. You see, um, you know, the numbers, while they have not gone up since voters twice now have rejected uh, race-based decision-making at UC, again, in California, the numbers have also not gone down. And that's important because even though you see the numbers have not gone down, the numbers of Latino and black students at community colleges and CSU have exploded. And what that tells me is there's a K-12 educational problem that we have been papering over using affirmative action when if we just solved for the real problem, which was actually educating black and brown kids, we wouldn't have to do all of this work. And that, that's what it ultimately comes down to. And there's got to be some reckoning to actually look at and understand that. California gives us a really good roadmap. This bluest to blue states, this incredibly pluralistic, ethnically, racially, economically diverse state has soundly rejected. You know, in fairness to Harvard and UNC, they would say that they did not use race as a sole characteristic. The problem is that when confronted by the numbers, it sure looked that way. Um, you know, and again, that, that was probably just a really hard thing to defend to say, you know, well, we don't advantage or just, dis or disadvantage anybody because of race, but boy, the rod, I mean, when you open up the numbers, it, it, it sure looked like that, but I want to foot stomp Mike's point about how, you know, I, I was, I never taught K through 12. I was a college professor and it seemed to me that colleges were trying to solve a lot of social 
and educational inequality at the other end of the pipeline to say, well, can't fix what happened, you know, for the first 18 years. So we'll just wave all that away and, you know, take kids who, who, who may not be prepared, um, you know, and, and just say, well, there, we're going to fix it like that. And I, I, you know, one of the things that always struck me listening to college kids um, was how cynically honest they were among each other about affirmative action. They talked about it. You know, college kids will talk to each other about affirmative action in ways that would make um, adults blanch. Um, and, and just like, you know, I, I mean, I had a dean come up to me one time at um, uh, at Dartmouth. And so, oh my God, the way these kids talk to each other about this. And I'm like, I was like, they're just telling the, they're telling each other that they're not mad at each other. They're just kind they're of just not sugarcoating it. They're not sugarcoating it. Exactly. Cause it affects them directly. They're it's their lives. And you know, they, they would have these very brutally honest conversations about it. So, you know, that's, I, I think Mike's point about it's not just inevitable, but a good thing. Um, you know, diversity is a good thing and getting to it some in some other way uh, than whatever was happening over these past few years is past few decades, really, um, since Baki is probably um, going to I think he's absolutely right. The colleges will just double down and find a way to do it. This is a big part of a broader problem. There, there is a class issue in America that Tom was directly alluding to, which is the fundamental problem. And the, the more we focus exclusively on race, and, and, and let me be measured with my words, exclusively on race, I'm not diminishing the racial component to this. I've spent my whole career working on it. It's real, okay? But, but there's a fundamental class problem. And if you solve for the class problem, a significant amount of the racial tension goes away. Not all of it, but a significant amount of it. And that should be the focus of government. That should be the priority of policymakers. And as Pollyannish as it is of me to say, I would also hope that it would be those of the different leadership in the respective communities that need some sort of redress and uplift. If we focus on the economic solutions, a lot of this goes away. There's a legitimate argument that higher education helps ameliorate those economic concerns, and that is true. But as I mentioned in the UC system in California, it's been fully exposed here. The problem is not that people aren't going to colleges, it's that they're not prepared in the K-12 system to get to the UC level. There's still exploding rates at the community college and CSU system, which I think, by the way, are great. I'm a product of the community college system. I don't disparage it. But to get to that UC level, it's because our students, our black and brown students, are not prepared to compete and su succeed and thrive at the UC level, that's the problem that needs to be solved for. Can, can I just point out a kind of humorous um, role reversal, a humorous, odd, weird role reversal? You know, 40, 50 years ago, the right was obsessed with race. And the left, you know, in coming out of a romance with Marxism, was obsessed with class. And it's amazing to me now that, you know, I have arguments with people and I'm like, you're the guy I've, I've literally had like liberal friends say, you're like this closet Marxist. You're so interested. You're so obsessed with class. I'm like, I, I, you know, what's that old PSA, right? About I learned it from watching you, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, class matters. Class is class is, can in fact often be more important, especially as we come, be, become a more multiracial 
multi-ethnic society, we're going to learn again just how important class is. But it's it just blows my mind that people who in the 60s and 70s were just you know b- banging the desk about class and class orientations have just completely left that aside and kind of switched clothes with the old right about race being determinative about everything. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, okay, I guess if I'm going to wave the bloody shirt of, you know, neo-Marxism or whatever this is, you know, <laughs> class really matters. And, and, you know, people on the right and the left, we can have that conversation about how much it should matter, but it matters. I'm laughing so much because Mike is like feverishly nodding along because we've had exactly this conversation quite a few times. And, uh, and, and Tom, Tom, you, you and Mike could be in exactly the same, uh, position on this. Um, I I think it's fascinating. And if I could use your point about class to parlay that into one other piece of this, um, dialogue that's playing out, it's about, um, about legacy admissions. I want to, I want to just talk about it for a couple of minutes because the, um, the refrain that then sprang up in the wake of this, especially from a lot of people on the left, was, but what about legacy admissions? And it does amount to sort of a whataboutist um, argument. And uh, because the court wasn't, the court was addressing a very specific question about race. Legacy admissions policies aren't, uh, were not part of the scope of this decision. Doesn't mean it's, we shouldn't talk about it, but but I found it to be a little bit of a disingenuous um, maneuver. One of the reasons is, uh, there's this tweet the, the AOC put out saying something like 70% of the admissions or 70% of the students admitted to Harvard under legacy admissions are white. And she was, she was pointing to that as evidence that the policy was racist. And then Jonah Goldberg is like, well, hang on a second, 71 to 75% of America is white. So if you're considering 70% racist, then what would be like, this actually looks like a victory for race conscious, uh, or, or diversity of legacy admissions. Um, anyway, I'm just curious where you guys both come down on the question of legacy admissions, whether they should be reformed, whether they should be done, done away with altogether, even though that wasn't part of the scope of this decision. Um, and when people say, oh, the court didn't touch legacy admissions, well, that's kind of obvious if you read the cases, because it wasn't a question before the court. Um, Mike, I, I'm not a, I, I'd be happy to see legacy. You know, this is again as a working class kid, and this is where Mike and I, as as a couple of old school right wingers, are starting to sound like union organizers or something. But um, you know, um, I, I'm not I'm not in favor of legacy admissions, and frankly, I my um, anger about college athletics are pretty well known as well. You know, that college college athletics are just basically. A business, they're farm teams for pro sports. Um, but um, I, I think the one place where the court was actually more disingenuous was that one little footnote saying, "Well, we're not going to apply this to military academies, to U.S. military academies, because they have a." De-. And I'm like, "Well, wait a minute. If affirmative action is okay for U.S. military academies because it achieves some important purpose there, then why isn't it okay anywhere?" And the court just kind of hand waved and said, all of this has to go, except at military academies, because they're special and different. And then they just kind of moved on. And I thought that was kind of a cheap out uh, in the in the ruling. The way I read that was that there could be a different set of facts or circumstances that we're not going to consider today, ra- rather than it definitely is they're exempted. Right. 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 But yeah, but I still thought they could have at least said, you know. Military academies have to, you know, draw from all 50 states. 
Um, but they just kind of said, they just kind of hand waved it on it. They punted on it. They hand waved it away. But I, I, you know, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a deal breaker to say, okay. And what about legacy emissions? Yeah. I don't like those either. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a feeling we'll, there's going to be a lot of discussion about this in the coming months, certainly as these, as these universities retool their, their policies. I wonder if legacy admissions will be on the table. Okay, let's pivot to uh, Russia, Ukraine now, uh, because this has obviously been a situation that's been evolving for a couple of weeks. Um, so after a short-lived uh, rebellion at the end of last month, Russian President Vladimir Putin is reportedly reinforcing his defenses. Uh, Putin has long been focused on security. He's said to work out of identically constructed offices at his multiple residences so that photographs can't reveal his location. The Kremlin is still requiring people who come near Putin to quarantine for days. Uh, His assistants undergo a rigorous selection process. His bodyguard once called them a cast of chosen people. Uh, So far, Putin hasn't reacted with the sort of large-scale purge that we've seen from other authoritarian leaders who've survived this kind of attempted uh, coup. So, Tom, a couple of days after the the initial news was breaking, um, as as Prigozhin and his militia were standing up to Putin, um, I spoke with Molly McHugh for 10, 15 minutes just about, like, what do we know, what do we not know? And at that time, the situation was very fluid, and we we didn't know a whole lot. can you sort of bring us up to speed from the moments that this began to break and how what we what we have learned since then about this uh, mutiny and about um, what Putin's position is now? All of uh, everything I say goes under the caveat of we still don't really know what happened. So, um, you know, I am going to take wild guesses here, um, but hopefully informed guesses. but. What it looks like is that Prigozhin was actually not becoming more powerful, that he was looking ahead to becoming less powerful, that um, after the fighting in Bakhmut, which, you know, was kind of a huge mess that didn't cover anybody in the Russian side with glory, uh, the, the defense minister said, I want Wagner's guys to sign contracts with the MOD and they'll come under me. Well, you have to understand that Prigozhin and Shoigu, the defense minister, they hate each other. And so Prigozhin said, I'm not doing that. And I want you out. Uh, and so he marches to Rostov. And I think, and now we start getting into specula- heavier speculation. Um, I think he went to Rostov saying, and now my friends in Moscow are going to handle the other end of this. So that like, I'm going to shake everybody up. I'm going to seize Rostov. Um, you know, without firing, well, yeah, he fired several shots, killed 13 Russian pilots. Um, but I'm going to do this, you know, with more or less a permissive entry into the city. People are going to cheer. And my guys in Moscow are then going to say, Shoigu and uh, the chief of the general staff, Garasimov, you guys are out. We're going to purge the fat ass, lazy bureaucrats who have been running this war. And, you know, we're going to finally do it right. And I, Prigozhin, will have my own private army and become very powerful within that. And that's just not what happened. Somebody lost their nerve somewhere. Um, you saw this weird hostage video from a guy named, um, Sir Vikan, um, you know, who does this kind of 
halt. He's got a gun in his lap and he's doing this kind of halting, you know, stop before it's too late. Stop. stop. You know, it was like the, the Willy Wonka. No, stop. Come back. You know, he was like a general, uh, right? Yes. He's a general. He'd been put in charge of the operation. He, he was called general Armageddon. He was at a reputation as a tough guy in Syria. Um, and, um, and, uh, he, uh, just, you know, he got fired. I mean, Putin just grinds through these guys. And so I, I, he's being apparently being questioned, but now I think Putin got stuck because this moment revealed to him that he can't really know who's, whose side everybody is on right now. Um, you know, so he goes with the guys he knows who are in his, in his clique, in his coterie. Um, he doesn't issue an, an attack to like flatten Wagner and Prigozhin because maybe, and, and please, again, remember, this is theorizing in the absence of evidence, but maybe he just wasn't sure that anybody was going to really carry out that order, that it would just make it worse that to have the Russian army, you know, slaughtering a bunch of guys who had just fought their way out of Bakhmut and, you know, been on the front lines in Syria and, and Ukraine, that that was going to go badly. And so he says, okay, um, you know, call, this is a mobster thing, right? So I got this problem. And um, I, I, I was imagining this as uh, Frankie Pentangeli, you know, going to Michael and saying, I want him dead. And saying, no, I have business with, you know. Um, <laughs> so, so he gets to go to Belarus. And the guys who aren't part of this rebellion are told, come now you have to come sign up with the defense ministry. So, you know, the defense ministry wins, Prigozhin loses, Putin loses a lot because now the, the idea that he is indestructible and he is the supreme leader who can never be questioned, that's gone. Um, and this is now an old fashioned Kremlin, you know, opera where everybody's running around trying to figure out who's on whose side. And I don't think this is over. I mean, I think the mutiny itself, this weird little, you know, uh, comic opera that uh, that exploded over a few days, um, that's over. But I don't think the drama in Moscow is over. And I'll, and I'll just wrap this up by saying people should not try to be too clever about this because we all love complicated, you know, mission impossible kind of conspiracy theories. But I keep going back to the Watergate rule. These are not very bright guys and things just got out of hand. Mm. So your sense is that Putin is and has been weakened by this episode. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what should we then make of a weakened Putin? And, um, and what do you make of the, uh, I think the New York times was reporting him going to, you know, uh, an, an, an outside event where he's sort of kissing babies and, and doing sort of retail politicking that, kind of thing that he doesn't he, do. He didn't want yeah. to do that. Um, you know, but he needed some video to counter people yelling Wagner, Wagner, you know, mm. in, in Rosling. He said, Hey, look, I'm the president of the country. People love me. And, mm. you know, he gets out there in his shirt sleeves and presses flesh among the people, probably freaked him out to have to do it, um, given what a complete, you know, germaphobe he's become. But the question now is, does he try to reassert control by doing things even more brutally? you know, in Ukraine, or is that now a limiting factor on him that people are coming and saying, you know, we can't throw any more guys into this meat grinder. Um, and, and does that make him think about, you know, 
even greater war crimes than the ones he's already committed. I just don't, I don't know. I think what really struck me here <clears throat> was how hesitant and tentative he was during this whole thing. Um, not really what you'd expect from a guy who's made his bones as, you know, a, a leg breaking tough guy. Um, he get the day this thing happens, he does a five minute video and excoriates the, the traitors and then he skips town. I'd love to ask a question about the state of the war itself, but given all of that and, and, and what's happening or not happening with the counteroffensive and how dug in both sides are and the tactical elements of, of, you know, where we're at in the year with the seasons is, is this becoming a war of attrition here? And if it is, is Ukraine's best bet to just kind of slowly bleed the Russian army to death? And is that what the Russian army is trying to do with the Ukrainians? What's, what, are, what are the tactical objectives each side is trying to accomplish at this point? Well, that's a hard question because the, the original Russian objective has failed. I mean, the Russians lost the war in the first three weeks. The, the Russian objective was shock and awe, collapse the government, take Ukraine whole with a um, you know, puppet regime in, in Kiev and say, war's over, greater Russian empire has been reestablished, all Slavic peoples united and, and you know, a great celebration. Now, it seems that Putin's goal is to murder Ukrainians for opposing him. So in that sense, yeah, it's a war of attrition and the Ukrainians are outnumbered. Um, but the Russians have been so terrible at this that they have taken incredibly lopsided casualties attacking Ukrainian defensive positions. Now, with the counteroffensive, here, here's the problem that it always accrues to the side going on the offensive. The, the, the defense is the more privileged um, position to be in, right? Nor, you know, the rule of thumb is you should have, you know, this is the rough kind of slide rule of, of the old days that you should have three to one to, to go on the offensive. So it's going to be slower going for the Ukrainians now because they're the ones that are trying to carry offensive operations. And instead of trying not to lose territory, they're trying to gain territory back, um, which I think they, they have to do. They can't just sit there over and over again and absorb waves uh, of Russian attacks. And now that they have better equipment and, you know, frankly, they're better trained, they have better morale, um, you're going to see advances. But I think people should be realistic that you're not going to suddenly you know, um, it's not going to be a saving private Ryan moment and they're going to storm the beaches and it'll be over, you know, in a, in a week. Um, this is going to be a long, ugly grind because that's the nature of this war, which is at this point a lot more like World War One than it is like World War Two, with, you know, guys clearing out trenches. Um, so it's so it's kind of a, a nightmare. But um, the the Russians, the, I think the the question for the Russians at this point is, um, do you still have enough stuff and enough people to, to throw into this meat grinder? But Putin, one thing Putin hasn't done that we've been expecting is that he hasn't really tried to do mass, you know, dragooning of young men. He kind of took a shot at it last spring. It didn't go very well. Um, because part of the problem is that even if you could, even if you could just conscript all these guys in Russia, you don't have anywhere to put them. You don't, have, you don't have anywhere to train them. You don't have enough stuff to clothe them. 
Um, so, you know, the, this is a classic case of the Russian, of, you know, a great power embarking on a war that it thought would be quick and it didn't plan for anything else. And so now their plan B is just keep killing people. Can I ask a little bit of a broader question? If you zoom out and look at the, you know, the the constellation of authoritarians who are probably watching Putin, what are they thinking about his standing now? Does they see him as weaker? How does what it, what does this do to Putin's relationship with Orban and uh, and um, uh, everybody, especially China and Xi? How are they viewing his position now after this coup? Are they doing a double take? I can only speculate, but I have to. I have to assume that if you've just um, had to um, arm wrestle a thug like Prigozhin, you're probably not looking like the strongest leader. You're probably not projecting a lot of strength to to other dictators uh, in the world. Um, that's you know, kind of first rule of dictator club is that you don't have. I mean, you get to be a dictator by not having people do what just happened. And getting away with it, by the way. That's the other thing. I mean, he Prigozhin didn't just do it. He did it. He got away with it. I, I, I have to imagine that, you know, the Chinese, who I think probably were not big fans of this whole business to begin with, and were hoping, you know, just do it, finish it, wrap it up, get it over with, um, ha- have to wonder about this. And um, I imagine that there are others who say, okay, you know, one thing Putin's good at, I, I will say, is that when he tells other guys, listen, I've got your back, you know, when he tells other bad guys, I've got your back, like Syria, right? I've got your back, I'm on your team, and I'm solid, um, he he acts on it. I mean, he, in that sense, he's a good ally to have if you're a bad guy, but not such a great ally to have if he's got to be at home um, doing a two-step around a, you know, guy who's a Soviet ex-con um, with a private army. That's that That doesn't look so good. Um, it's not so appealing if you're if that's your who your pals are. I want to transition to our third topic here, but before we get to Tom's piece, I want to do this uh, transition sort of through the lens of the United States relationship with war as we're talking about war. Um, earlier this week, uh, I came across a social media post um, that said something like the U.S. has been at war for about 90% of our history or over 90% of our history of our existence. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound right. So I started doing some research and I started putting together all of the wars and I couldn't count to 90%. But if you include all of the conflicts, both primary wars, cold wars, minor, minor wars, uh, and conflicts with Native Americans, et cetera, you can count to about 80% of the time that America's been at war. And I thought that was kind of shocking and this 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 idea pops up pretty regularly around the July Fourth holidays, and um, and you know it, it was a number that really struck me, and it wasn't one that I had spent a lot of time thinking about. And so, given how much attention now in the you know with the backdrop of the presidential campaign and multiple candidates uh, actively campaigning on an anti-war sort of anti-Ukraine, anti-U.S. interventionism, isolationist. Uh, uh, platform, including Robert F. Kennedy, who's getting a lot of traction in the Democratic primary. I wonder how you are both thinking about the country's relationship with war. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it a pretty standard thing that we've spent such a large part of our history at war? And, you know, Mike, as I ask this question, I'm reminded of how often you and I've talked about American frontierism 
and how America needs a frontier and 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 how maybe at times war has scratched that itch. Can you offer some thoughts about how you think about um how you think about America at war and its its role in our history? And then Tom, I'm sure, has lots of thoughts on this. And then I want to get to Tom's piece about patriotism, which is beautiful. Yeah, look, I, I think it's 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 actually a little bit beyond frontierism. There's been a lot of, I think, very intelligent, observant social commentators over the decades that have suggested that freedom alone is not enough as a cultural anchor to provide America this United States of America, this, this idea of America as a cohesive element. We, we actually, as Americans, and we're unique in this regard, we embrace the erasure of ethnic ties. We started in the early 1900s under the progressive era, Teddy Roosevelt, to say, let's just drop, drop the hyphen, quit being where you're from, and start focusing on being an American. The, the, the problem is, you know, culture Culture is really what allows people to survive as a, as a political species, I mean, in a polis, not in a Republican-Democratic sense, without killing each other, <laughs> right? And, and, and if, if, you know, in America, when we try to define what our common culture is, it always kind of, I would say, devolves into this nebulous idea of freedom, which, of course, is not only not a glue that keeps people together, it's actually its value is in kind of forcing people apart. And in a society that doesn't have a common culture and uses freedom alone as an anchor is inevitably going to turn on itself when it doesn't have an external threat or what we use in very elementary parlance in politics is negative partisanship. It's easier to be against something than it is to be for something. And when you lack a common religion, a common shared history, a common ethnicity, a common language, a common everything, which is the beauty of America, it's also its greatest weakness. And without an external threat, we don't have a really good track record of doing very well. If you look at the past couple of decades, and yes, we've had our Middle Eastern conflicts, but most Americans didn't even know we were at war over the past 10, 20, 30 years uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, because we've exported it. When, when we don't have any shared sacrifice or any commonality in terms of what our objective is, we turn on ourselves. That, 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 and that's really, I think, what a society does when it doesn't have a common culture. And freedom alone is not enough of a culture. And I think that without that expansiveness, without that, without that need to, 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 to that, that's where the frontier mentality comes into. If we're not growing, we're dying, right? If we're like a shark, if it's not moving, it's dying. So it's got to it's got to continually be pushing forward. It's got to be continually expanding because once it's not, it starts to turn inwards and turn in on itself. So uh, t- to me, it's more of a cultural uh, component that's required of of this country. I don't know if it's unique, but it's certainly I think unique at the moment. That if we are not in some sort of external conflict we start to turn inwards and start to kind of cannibalize ourselves. I'm going to throw a penalty flag on the, on the uh, premise of the question though, because I'm, I'm curious and I haven't done the math. I'm curious to ask um, if you count wars as, you know, deployed forces to conflicts, for example, rather than interstate wars. Um, yeah. You know, we've been all over the place, but 
I would ask that same question of other great powers. I mean, you know, the the, the Malaysian emergence, Britain, Britain's Malaysian emergency, and I'm making little air quotes, you know, um, lasted for years. Um, you know, the um, in the 20th century, if if you go over the past 200 years and compare other great powers, have we been more or less engaged in such military um, actions? And again, for what purpose as well? I mean, you could say, well, you know, we don't want to compare ourselves to Germany. They had a pretty active military history, um, but, you know, not for the same reason. So that that's part of it. Um, and I think that the other part of it is being a continental power, being surrounded by two oceans. We trust. I mean, it's ironic that, you know, we're run that we're that this is the that we're getting the anti-war platform because the other tension in American life is that we've, we've always been isolationist. Um. We want to join the, the the League of Nations. We had a big fight over NATO. We, you know, it's we come out of the Cold War and it's the economy, stupid. And but the one place I want to agree with Mike strongly is after the end of the Cold War, it's not so much that we needed to to unite in hating somebody, but that we no longer had. And I think the end of the Cold War um, really did bring out a lot of ugly divisions, simply because we no longer had a sense of what it would look like to lose to bad guys. Like the Soviet Union was always there. And we said, you know, if we don't stick together, if we don't care about our common heritage, if we don't respect our freedoms and defend the constitution, that's what it looks like, you know? And I think the problem is that people have forgotten that. And that's why I, I know we're going to talk about the piece I wrote, but that's why I kept talking about memories of being in the Soviet Union and then coming home and saying, my God, no matter how awful we are, uh, no matter the mistakes we make, no matter how much I'm, I get pissed at people from, you know, Georgia or Wyoming, I, I wouldn't want to. These are my brothers and sisters compared to what I just experienced. And I think with the end of the Cold War, we just got kind of lazy and spoiled and said, you know, we yeah, we're the big power in the world. Everything goes our way. Um, why aren't things perfect now? You know, why are why is our we we have. Our tolerance for any kind of economic uh, disruption has become um, tiny. When you could, you know, we had inflation after pandemic for like eighteen months, you know, as opposed to in the seventies when we endured it for like ten years at higher levels, you know. Um, um, and now we're, you know, inflation's at like what four percent, and we're like, oh, you still got to do something about inflation. Um, because we just we have no conception of what an alternate model to uh, to us looks like. This is no. This is a terrific segue to the piece you wrote, uh, which which I thought was beautiful. And um, this is a real American patriotism, reclaiming real American patriotism in the Atlantic, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But can you 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 in the piece you talk about how the summer of 1983 was the the, the memory that kicked off your your reflection. Uh, which in, incidentally was the year I was born, the summer of 1983, actually. So why don't you, why don't you take us, take us down memory lane and, and really explain to us what you mean by real American patriotism. This, there was, an, there was echoes in this piece of our own worst enemy, which you and I discussed quite a lot, but um, if you could reprise that for, for our listeners, that'd be great. Um, well, first, what I mean by patriotism is a positive 
optimistic, joyful love of country for everything that we are. Um, you know, I, I wrote the piece um, because I had this thought. I was driving to the beach, which I love. I'm a New Englander and I live near a beach. And um, that, you know, take me home country roads came on. And suddenly my, I've been to West Virginia. It's a beautiful place. And suddenly my head, you know, I'm looking at the beach and my head's full of, you know, the Blue Ridge Mountains. I'm thinking, what a great country this is, you know, and that, um, you know, as much as I get pissed at everybody in it, you know, I just love every inch of this country. And um, I, I, I wanted to distinguish that from what now passes for patriotism, which is really this kind of sour, pissy nationalism of blood and soil, you know, that, well, um, you know, we're, we're better than, you know how I, why I love America? Cause everybody else sucks. Um, you know, everybody else is terrible and they all want to come here and they're all from, you know, shithole countries. And I mean, it's just this kind of nasty, pessimistic, um, stink. I, I called it, the, I, I contrasted with the incense, the incense of patriotism compared with the stink of nationalism. I think nationalism is, has always been a, um, almost inevitably has been a destructive force inward looking. It's exclusive. It doesn't, it, it's everything that is the opposite of American patriotism. And I think we've fallen into that because it's a way that we find identific identification with a group. That's, this goes back to Mike's point about, well, we're going to find people to hate. And I, and I felt it. Look, I, I admitted in the piece, I'm part of the problem. I hear West Virginia now, and it, it struck me how positively I was responding to the music because normally I think of West Virginia and I think of red state, you know, backward Trump voters. And, I, and as I said, I'm sure they look at, you know, they hear the word Boston or Providence and they think snotty blue state, clam eating, lobster shucking, chowder guzzling, you know, whatever. Um, if only they could taste a New England lobster roll, Tom. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and I, I just think that we have to stop doing that. And so I thought back to 40 years ago, um, you know, when I was in the Soviet Union and it was rare, of course, people travel more now. So they're more used to running into each other in foreign countries, but it was, it was rare to be even in Western Europe and run into Americans and say, Hey, where are you from? You know, Texas. Oh yeah, sure. You know, next door. I'm from, I'm from Delaware, Texas neighbors, you know, but if you, if you were in a place like the Soviet Union and you ran into Americans, it was almost like a family experience. Like, Hey, you know, how are you? Good to say, what are you doing here? How's it been? Because you knew you were being watched. You knew that you were in a dangerous, you know, um, a pre politically oppressive environment and you, you know, you, you felt that, um, and flying back, I flew back. Um, <clears throat> I went to, I went to the Soviet Union in May, I came back in July and I landed at JFK on the 4th of July. And I had a late flight back. I I'm from the Springfield, Massachusetts area originally. So I had to fly up to Hartford and, um, we took a little commuter plane that skirted low, you know, cause it's just a quick hop and I could see fireworks going off everywhere. Uh, under me and it choked me up. And I thought, I'm so glad to be among my, I, I might not like all these people and I might think some of them are real jerks, you know, but they're my people and I am safe among them because they will, no matter how much we disagree, they will protect my rights. 
Um, I can worship as I please. I can go where I want. I can, you know, say what I feel like. Um, and I just spent, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks with people who couldn't do that. And I know I can hear people out there saying, oh, but you know, Tom, there are still people who can't live as they want and speak as they please. And America, you know, um, what's that line from Red Dawn? You know, America's you're a, a whorehouse of, you know, okay, <clears throat> I get it. We're not perfect. But until you've spent a couple of months in Soviet Leningrad, you don't realize how far we've come. And so I, I said in the piece, for just a day, I'm going to think of everybody I run into as if I am in the old Soviet Union in Leningrad and they're Americans that I've just encountered, where I would not have asked them, wait, who'd you vote for? You know, if I'd have run into you in Leningrad in 1983, I wouldn't have said, no, wait a minute, you're from where? Who'd you vote for? How do you feel about abortion? What do you think about student law? I just would have said, oh, you're, you're from Tennessee? Bro my friend, family, you know, and, and I think we need to get that back for a day instead of, um, you know, that, again, that churlish, sour nationalism that has become a, a religion for millions of, of Americans and uh, that I think is just destructive and poisonous. This reminds me of uh, uh, another piece in Politico this week by Christina Beltran, uh, who wrote about how progressives need to reclaim the 4th of July. And the real thrust of her piece is that um, our political divisions have led to a split where most Americans fall into a camp of those who believe the nation, you know, requires a reckoning, uh, and those demanding only celebration. And um, she points out that this is a quote: "If conservatives are uncomfortable confronting our violent and com com complicated past." We progressives struggle with how to celebrate this place we also love. And she calls for a progressive to find a path that does both. And I thought that was, um, I thought that was moving. I thought it was good uh, and healthy. The Soviets used to play that card. Um, um, they, they would use this expression, uh, and you lynch Negroes. You know, you'd, they would say this to you. Or when I was there in the 80s, in the 80s um, you know, oh, but, you know, you care a lot about our Jews. What about your Native Americans? And I would say, we're not, we're not perfect, but all of the barbed wire around the Berlin Wall is on your side. You know, I'm sorry, but we don't, you know, yeah, we, we, we have, we suffer from all kinds of problems, institutional racism, and, you know, we've made terrible mistakes, and we've had a national security state that's abused people's rights, and yet, um, you know, I, I don't see anybody trying to sneak into the Soviet Union to live the good life here. You, you know, you, you've created a prison camp. You start, you literally are starving your, your own people. I, one of the things I did when I was in, every time I went to the old Soviet Union, I, as a, cause I was a Sovietologist, right? I was an, I was an expert, academic expert on Soviet affairs. So I would try and do ordinary things. I, today I am going to go and go from store to store to try and create a, a, a typical grocery bag of goods. And, you know, I went to, I went from empty store to empty store and I stood in lines and I did all of that stuff. And, you know, I don't think you realize just, you know, how shockingly evil all of that oppression is when you layer onto it. Oh, and by the way, you can't, you don't have shoes. Um, you know, there's no, there's an old Soviet joke. I, I have a ton of these old Soviet jokes, but I'll just tell a quick one where a guy goes in and he says, uh, 
goes into a completely empty store and he says, hey, I, I, I want to buy some uh, eggs. And the guy says, no, no, this is the store that never has cheese. The store that never has eggs is across the street. <laughs> I want to make sure we, we can flip over to Politicology Plus in time. So um, let's wrap up with our, with our look aheads here real quick. What did you bring for us? I'm looking at threads, guys. I, I am. I'm looking at uh, Zuckerberg's response to Elon Musk's Twitterverse. So sorry if that if that <laughs> troubles folks, but that's. Uh, I, I want to see if this is going to be the, the the land of milk and honey for those trying to get off of Twitter and get away from it and move from one bad billionaire to the next bad billionaire uh, to get our data, you know, followed, traced, and tracked on another platform. So. Uh, it's been alive at least at this taping for about 48 hours, I think, and there's now 10 million users, something like that. So uh, it's rapidly shifting um, the the ecosystem, or at least rattling Musk's cage. And uh, I'm just excited to, to see what what that means as we watch the uh, our continued public square uh, devolution into other small micro chambers. We'll see if this continues that trend. Oh, you mean it's decentralizing just like everything else? They got 10 million users in seven hours, I think. Um, Tom, what'd you bring for us? How is it that a former president of the United States publishes the address of one of his predecessors and a guy shows up with guns and explosives and it's not a huge story? I, I mean, how- You're breaking news to me right now. I have no idea what you're talking just about. just gotten used to that. Um, apparently a guy was arrested outside of Obama's, um, home with explosives, you know, and he got the address. Apparently, um, it's a developing story, but it's been, been going on now for the past few days. I guess the justice department wants to keep holding him, uh, um, because he got the address, you know, from Donald Trump announcing it. Uh, he posted on his social Trump posted on a, on his his social media platform uh, what he claimed was the home address of Barack Obama. And that day, a guy shows up in a van with a bunch of guns. Wow. And, and we're just again, you know, we're just kind of, oh, yeah, these things happen. You know, um, it, I think it shows you how corroded and and um, how denatured we've become because of the presence of people like Donald Trump in our in our public life. Yeah. Indeed. That was the home in here in DC. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I've walked by there. That's crazy. Um, okay. Let's, uh, flip over to politicology plus briefly before we do, um, where should everybody find you on the internet, Tom? Um, I'm on Twitter at radio free Tom. Um, and I, you know, I don't know if I'm going to try thrive. I went to threads and I I've already been confused by it because I'm old. So uh, Radio Free Tom, and of course, you can always find me at, um, at The Atlantic. In the pages of The Atlantic. All right. And Mike? Find me on Threads. What's your, what's your thread handle? Yeah, Threads. Okay. It's Mike Madrid, M-Y-K-E-M-A-D-R-I-D. <laughs> <laughs> the other Mike Madrid. All right. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. 
If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.